Well, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, and this evening we shall read verses 1 to 53. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 53, let us hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, 
She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews, who had come with her, also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. If a uh, good friend of yours was ill, perhaps even close to death, I'm sure that you would do everything in your power to get to them as quickly as possible. I'm sure that you would um, drop all of your plans straight away and quickly pack a bag and then rush uh, to their bedside. That's the sort of thing that, that you do when a, when a close friend is, is seriously ill, maybe even close to death. And that is why it is so surprising that when Jesus hears that his good friend Lazarus is clearly very ill and close to death, he, he doesn't go straight away. Instead, he waits two days before eventually 
setting out to uh, Judea. Why, why does Jesus do this? Why does he decide to delay going to see this good friend of his who is so seriously ill? Well, it's not because Jesus is worried about the danger that might well await him in Judea, the danger that the disciples very quickly uh, point out to him as a, as a very real possibility, given that the last time he was there, uh, he came close to being stoned. Jesus isn't worried about that. He, he says, in effect, in verses 9 and 10, that, that he has come to do, to do good, to do the deeds of light, even in the face of dark opposition and, and danger. So he doesn't delay because he's worried about the danger that, uh, that might face him in Judea, nor does he delay because he doesn't love Lazarus very much. That's made very clear in verses 3 and 5. Lazarus was a, was a very close friend of the Lord Jesus. He, he loved him dearly. No, Jesus waits two days before uh, heading out to Bethany because as he makes very clear in verse 4, this illness, the illness of Lazarus, does not lead to death. It is, he says, for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's the reason Jesus delays two days. He's saying the ultimate purpose, the ultimate end of this illness that uh, Lazarus now has will not be death. That's not its great purpose. That's not its ultimate end. The ultimate end and purpose of Lazarus's illness will be the glory of God. And so Jesus waits to go because he doesn't want to arrive in Bethany until Lazarus has been dead uh, for four days. He arrives once Lazarus has been dead for four days. He doesn't want to arrive before then. He doesn't want to get there until Lazarus's body has, as it were, really begun to rot and decay. He doesn't want to arrive until, we might say, death has really taken hold of Lazarus. Jesus wants to, to, to wait until that has, that has really sort of taken hold of, of Lazarus. Because then... When Jesus, as he puts it, wakes Lazarus up from his sleep, then people will see just how glorious he is. And this is Jesus' great goal in this whole episode. This is Jesus' driving ambition in all that he he does here. His, His great goal, his great purpose is to shine forth his glory and in so doing, to bring great glory to God. That's his purpose. And here we see Jesus' glory in, in three particular ways, which I want to consider with you this evening. We see Jesus' glory in what he says, in what he feels, and in what he does. First of all, then, we see the glory of what Jesus says. Now, when he does uh, finally arrive in Bethany, Mary comes out to meet Jesus, and uh, Martha, rather, comes out to meet Jesus, and she 
she says that she knows that Jesus could have stopped her brother from dying. She says that in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet she remains hopeful that Jesus will still be able to help. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus then goes on to assure her that her brother will rise again, verse 23. And this is something that, that Martha knows will, will indeed happen. It will happen at the end of the age in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus, of course, isn't speaking about that future resurrection, or at least not primarily about that future resurrection. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, he's speaking about something much more immediate. Jesus is speaking about a present reality more than he is about a future hope. And so, in that context, Jesus then utters these glorious words. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice that that Jesus doesn't simply say that he gives resurrection life. He doesn't just say that. No, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Because, because he is God in the flesh. The word became flesh. Because he is the great I am. Notice again that we have Jesus here appropriating that, that divine name. I, I am who I am. I am the Lord. Because Jesus is who he is. He has life in himself. Indeed, he is the very embodiment of life, the very embodiment of the salvation of God. He has life in himself because of who he is. In other words, what we learn here is that life is not some kind of abstract quality. No, life life is a, a person. Life is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life is the flesh and blood, divine human person. Of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus says here in verses 25 and 26 to Martha is really the culmination of so much of what John throughout his gospel has been telling us about the Lord Jesus. He has from the very beginning been displaying the fact that the Lord Jesus is the great giver of life. He is the life giver. He's the one who, we might say, gave life to water, turning it into wine back in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he offered to Nicodemus spiritual life in the kingdom of God. And then as you move on to chapter 4, we see Jesus promising life which would spring up within a person, life which would satisfy all thirst, promising that to the woman of Samaria. And in the same chapter, he imparts life to a dying boy. And then in chapter 5, he enables a paralytic to walk again. And then in chapter 6, having fed the 5,000, he calls himself the bread of life. Chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. He gives him sight again. And as we saw last week, Jesus is the good shepherd 
who came to give what? Life in all of its abundance. In other words, what we see is that a a large chunk of John's gospel is really taken up with, with amplifying that wonderful truth that is stated plainly in the prologue to John's gospel that in him, that is in the word, was life. And here in chapter 11, we see that fundamental claim that in him was life, reaching, I would say, its, its zenith. When Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And the glorious promise is that if you believe in this Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, who has all life, the life of the age to come in himself, if you believe in this Jesus, then you will live. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Yes, as a believer in Jesus, you will still die in the sense that your body will return to the dust. You will undergo physical death. Our bodies are decaying. They are dying right now. And one day they will be laid in the grave. But bodily death is not it. Bodily death is not the end. Bodily death is actually the gateway to a far better and a far richer life with God in heaven. And ultimately, of course, it is the gateway to the infinite glories of the new creation. So if you are a believer in Jesus here this evening, then you will not die. You will not die eternally. You will live forever. And that eternal resurrection life is in you now. You now have eternal resurrection life as a present possession. It's not just a future hope. It is brothers and sisters, a present possession. Why? Because you have been united by faith to him who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus Christ is, as Paul says, your life. He is literally your life. And he, of course, is the only true life that there is. There is no real life outside Jesus. Do you believe this? I hope like Martha, you do the glory of what Jesus says. But then secondly, I want us to see the glory of what Jesus feels as we, as we move on in the narrative. We read that Mary, Martha's sister, comes out to meet Jesus and she says the same thing as her sister. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then we're told in verses 33 to 35 that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. What did Jesus feel as he approached the tomb of Lazarus? Well, clearly he felt sorrow. Jesus was deeply grieved in his spirit. That's why he wept. But more than that, and in fact, I would say undergirding that sorrow and that grief, Jesus felt rage. Jesus felt rage. When he saw Mary and the Jews weeping, anger rose up within the breast of the Lord Jesus. Now the ESV says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, an expression that is repeated in verse 38. I actually think, I'm no Greek scholar, I admit that, but I actually think that's a fairly limp translation. I think it's far better to translate it in this way, something like this, that Jesus snorted with anger, or Jesus growled with fury. I think that would be a much better translation of the uh, underlying Greek verb here. It's a bit like, I suppose, and you've no doubt seen this on nature programs, it's a bit like when a lion, or maybe more likely a lioness, sees a predator approaching her cubs. What does she do? She growls with fury. Don't come any closer. These are my cubs. And I, I think that's kind of how we should picture this particular scene. As, as Jesus approaches the, the cave where his good friend Lazarus has been, has been laid in the clutches, as it were, of, of the predator called death. Jesus growls with rage and with fury. Benjamin Warfield puts it brilliantly in his wonderful essay, which we actually read as a book of the term a couple of terms ago, The Emotional Life of our Lord. If you've not read that, you really must. He puts it like this. He says that here, John, John tells us that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. True, he did also respond with tears, but the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. Here Jesus exudes holy fury as he comes to Lazarus' tomb. And why, why does he feel such holy fury? Why is Jesus so angry? At what is his just and holy rage directed? Not, of course, at the mourners. No. Jesus' rage was aimed squarely at that vile enemy who had caused these mourners to mourn so deeply, the enemy of death. And behind death, the cause of death, sin and Satan. That is who Jesus is furious with as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus. That most vile and most unholy trinity, Satan Sin and death. Death, after all, was not meant to be 
It was not meant to be. Death was not part of God's good original creation. Death, death only entered into the world when we in Adam sinned. That's what we learn in Genesis 3, isn't it? God cursed this world with death and decay as a result of our sin, as a result of our disobedience, as a result of our rebellion. And so Jesus, when he, when he sees what death has done to his world, when he sees how death has spoiled his good creation, when he sees the pain and the agony and the torment that death has brought into his world, Jesus feels within himself a burning fury. This is an enemy who has done this. It's an enemy, and I, I must slay this enemy. If I may quote Warfield again. In Mary's grief, Jesus sees and feels the misery of the whole human race. And he burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death. Jesus wept in response to Lazarus' death. But primarily, Jesus growled. He snorted with holy fury and anger. And aren't you glad that Jesus did so? Aren't you glad that this is exactly how Jesus reacted to the death of his close friend? Because it shows you that when you weep, when a loved one dies, you can be absolutely sure that, that Jesus fully sympathizes with you. He, as it were, weeps with you. And it also shows you that when you feel angry when a loved one dies, when you say something like, this ought not to have happened, you can be absolutely sure that Jesus fully agrees with you. That he ineffectively says, you are right to feel such anger. You are right to say that ought not to have happened. Because death, death is an alien intruder into my good world. Death ought not to be. You see, Jesus was not some kind of impassive, uh, detached, uh, cold as ice, neutral onlooker when he walked on the face of this earth. No, not at all. Jesus felt the, the full range of every single human emotion and he did so to the highest degree and with absolute purity. I am glad that when Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, he wept. And I'm glad that at the sight of death, Jesus growled with rage. That is the kind of saviour we need. But I'm even more glad that Jesus then did something about it. And this brings me to my third and final point this evening, the glory of what Jesus does. Filled with this holy rage, uh, Jesus advances to the tomb of Lazarus. He advances like a sort of champion, preparing for conflict. As one 
bearing down on his enemy. And in that spirit, he orders that the stone be removed from the face of the cave. And despite the protestations from Martha, it is removed. And then, having thanked his father for always hearing him, Jesus cries out with this loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. Lazarus does what he's told to do. Because he has to. It's the voice of Jesus. No longer is he a putrefying corpse. Once again, he is a living, breathing man. All because of Jesus' word. That's what's underlined here. The sheer awesome power of Jesus' word. He just has to speak. And Lazarus, though dead, dead for four days, his body starting to decay and rot, comes out. Jesus just has to say the word and life is given to the dead. I had a teacher at school called Mr. Danes. I might have mentioned him before. He had a big impact on me. He was a great teacher. He was as wide as he was tall, shaved head. And he, he had the loudest and the most commanding voice that I've ever heard. I remember one time, it was our first class with Mr. Danes when I was 11 or 12 years old. And we were standing outside the classroom. He hadn't appeared. And we were chatting away. There was a sort of general hubbub of noise. And then all of a sudden, from the, the other side of the, the quadrangle, we heard this booming voice, Boys, be quiet. Straight away, we were. There was absolute silence. Mr. Danes, he just had to speak the word. And you obeyed immediately. But loud and commanding, though Mr. Danes' voice was, he could not have commanded a corpse to rise up from the grave and then seen it come out. No mere man, however powerful his voice, could do that. But Jesus did. Because it's the voice of the creator of the universe. It's the voice of the omnipotent God who in the beginning said, let there be light. And there was. It's that voice that speaks here saying, Lazarus, come out. And so he did. Not even death, not even death could resist Jesus' command. Death had to give up its prey. It is a a remarkable sign, isn't it? It's a truly glorious sign that we have here in John chapter 11. Arguably, the greatest of the seven signs that John records 
in his gospel. By raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' glory was seen. You see the glory of what he says, the glory of what he feels, but primarily the, the glory of what he does. His glory is seen as he, with a word, raises Lazarus from the dead, and thereby he glorifies his father. And in seeing his glory, many of the Jews, we're told in verse 45, believed wonderfully, but not all, not all. And in fact, it's from this point on, after this most wonderful sign that the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, planned to put Jesus to death. It's shocking, isn't it? Absolutely shocking. Here we have these church leaders, these presbyters, and they're more concerned about their own place and their own position than they are with accepting what they know to be true. Highlighted for us here is the hardness that can set in on the human heart. It's shocking what these Jewish religious leaders plan to do. But what is perhaps even more shocking is the thought that he who is the resurrection and the life, who has life in himself, could actually be put to death. How could that happen, you might wonder? How could the one who is life itself, who has all life in himself, who is the resurrection and the life, how could he have his life taken away? How could that happen unless, unless, He willingly gave up his life unless he willingly submitted to death and freely chose to lay down his life. Caiaphas, the high priest that year, says that it is better for one man to die, die for the people, than for the whole nation to perish. And in saying this, as John points out, Caiaphas is unknowingly giving voice to the very plan and purpose of God. It had, you see, always been God's plan to put his son to death. That had been his plan from all eternity, to put his son to death, not just for the nation, but for all of his people, scattered throughout the whole world, Jew and Gentile. It had always been, you see, God's plan that instead of us paying the penalty for our sins, dying eternally in hell because of our rebellion and disobedience, it had always been God's plan that his son should suffer and die in our place. And it was this plan, this eternal plan of the triune God, this plan for the incarnate Son to die on the cross, that the Lord Jesus, the resurrection and the life, willingly submitted to. And so not long after raising Lazarus from the dead, that's where Jesus went, to his death. And on Calvary's cross, the resurrection and the life died. But wonderfully, by his death, death died. By his death, as he 
paid the penalty for our sin. As he bore in his body the curse of God. As he fully exhausted divine wrath. As Jesus died that death. So death died. As did him who has the power of death. The devil. And how do we know this? How do we know that in the death of Jesus, death died? Because three days after dying, the resurrection and the life rose to resurrection life. The resurrection and the life rose from the dead, never to die again. Lazarus would go on to die at some point. But Jesus has been raised to everlasting life. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was for the glory of God. That was its purpose, to glorify God. And Jesus was glorified through this wonderful sign. But there was, of course, an even greater sign than the raising of Lazarus. It was Jesus' own death and his own resurrection. And by his death and by his resurrection, the Lord Jesus brought supreme glory to his Father. And so if you are a Christian believer here this evening, then you, you can face death. You can face death, yes, with sorrow. Jesus wept. Yes, with anger. Death ought not to be. But above all else, you can face death with, with hope. With a living resurrection hope. Because the Lord Jesus has gone before you. And because the Lord Jesus, who will bring you through the valley of death, will be there to meet you on the other side. And one day, one day, each one of you here this evening, who is a believer in the Lord Jesus, will hear him calling out your name, just as he did here in John chapter 11 with Lazarus, saying to you, Roshan, come out. I could multiply that. Christopher pointed out last week that if Jesus had just said, come out, everyone would have come out. And he's right. Well, one day everyone will. Every believer in the Lord Jesus will one day come out. Come out from the grave. Jesus will say, come out. Come out. And you will. And then you'll live with him forevermore in resurrection life and joy. Amen.